Greetings, amigos and amigops and amigas. Welcome back to Top Time with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. I am joined this week, as I am every week, by your co-host, Mike. As we do every week, we will have a topic put forth. We will then rank the top 10 of said topic until we have arrived at a definitive top 10. This week, we both know the general topic. Uh, as you probably know, The Incredibles 2 came out recently, which Mike and I both saw and enjoyed. We're going to be doing a top 10 about that movie in some capacity. I don't know exactly what the list is, but I know in general what we're talking about. So without further ado, let's get talking about this incredible topic. All right, K-Money. So we're going to be talking about The Incredibles 2, as you mentioned. So the spin on this one, as suggested by friend of the pod and frequent critic of friend of the pod, Dylan, Shelby was that we talk about themes that The Incredibles 2 picked up on from The Incredibles. So some through lines from the first movie to the second that worked really well. So if, I think that this was a good way of accessing this. Really, this is going to be a potpourri of things I liked about this movie because there's not really enough characters a la Avengers to just do like a top 10 who won the movie. So I think we're just going to talk about some stuff that we really liked about it. So I think this is this is one, we're probably just going to get it as we go. I think this if that is, works for you. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be something that we do a little more frequently as we go forward. It, I got some advice over the weekend from good friend Abby, who suggested that she thinks our most entertaining episodes are ones in which we discuss something relevant and recent. So when we did Avengers or The Bachelorette, and I quite like being in the moment, too. So I think we'll do a little more of this. And if a movie doesn't quite lend itself to a natural top 10 like The Avengers or The Bachelor does... We'll figure it out as we go and put some kind of top 10 spin on it. Yeah. So I think that's the deal here. So without further ado, number 10, one thing that The Incredibles 2 picked up on that The Incredibles also had was a great short to open up the movie. It's fitting that we will start this pod with the <laughs> the beginning short. <laughs> I thought that felt fitting. So you probably don't remember the short from the first Incredibles movie because I didn't either. It's, you might, you gotta look in your face like you do remember it. I probably don't. What was it? It was Boundin. It was the one with the sheep. So, the sheep learns a valuable life lesson about getting up and continuing to go as it, as it goes through life. I think it's like a dancing sheep and it's getting sheared and it doesn't like that. Wow, well, you were right. I definitely did not remember that. So, I didn't remember it either. Went back and watched it. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> and this is something that The Incredibles 2 picked up on really nicely, is just the general legacy of Pixar movies having a great short. I watched this between two of the good friends of the pod, two of our very good friends. One, on my left, longtime girlfriend Caroline, and on my right, <laughs> currently missing in action because he got a new phone, uh, <laughs> Alex. So Alex is sitting on my right, Caroline's on my left, and there was just a lot of emotion in this row. We're in a theater full of three and four year old kids who are all watching this like why what's with the dumpling i don't get the dumpling and caroline who's 24 or 25 however old she is now is weeping to my left and alex is just wide-eyed in complete astonishment he's just totally glued to the screen i i thought this bow was so good it, it was really nice i it was a little bit tainted for us because we had heard on the car ride over that there was some kind of twist and sometimes even hearing that there's a twist and it wasn't really that's all you need to know yeah it like it kind of put me in a weird frame of mind for it but it was 
It was a really good one, and it, it really hit it hit you right in the feels like a lot of Pixar movies tend to do, but not necessarily the shorts. I was impressed mm-hmm. with how much they were able to cram into what like a four minute video. Yeah. And it's encouraging to see that they've gotten back on this train because I don't know if you saw the short ahead of Coco. No, you and I actually discussed this recently. I've and never part of the discussion was that I hadn't seen it and it was horrifying. I can't remember time being more irritated and, and bothered by the short film that they put in front of Coco. It felt so unlike what Pixar typically does. Whatever. The point is the bow short in front of this film is one of the best I've seen in front of yeah, a Pixar and movie. I love the animation. I when we realized that the son was a human, I loved the animation because he just he looked like a person you would know. Like they showed the the dumpling in like the outfits and it looked a little silly and then you saw what the actual person was and I was like, Oh, I, I know that guy. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a nice touch. And just the beginning I think the cuteness of the dumpling can't be overstated in the way it was measuring its height and having its face smashed oh, in and all those when yeah. it eats the she feeds it and its head swells up again. Beautiful. Just a delight. Yeah. That was a delight. So that's number ten. Number nine is in a very literal sense a through line that was picked up by the second movie. I think the decision to start the second movie just minutes after the end of the first was a great decision. I, for one, don't give half a crap about what happens when Dash is 35. I don't care. It's not, to me, relevant. I care about what's going on with Dash five minutes after the Underminer attacks. I think it's amazing because the first Incredibles ends with this note of you wondering, okay, they just had this experience where they kind of had to throw caution to the wind and pull it together to get out of a situation that they found themselves in. How would this work if it was more than just a off the seat of your pants? What if it was more structured? Yep. And they don't, they kind of backtrack on that a little bit as, as soon as the scene is over when they kind of go back to the Incredibles are in our supers are banned again type deal. But you're right. What's interesting about this group is that it's young children that don't maybe fully understand their powers and these parents that don't fully understand how to raise their children with these unique circumstances all while trying to fit into this society as a whole. And that's, what's interesting about the Incredibles and kudos to them for realizing that and saying, let's just keep doing that. Totally. I I really love that decision. And I think it worked out both, like you said, from a thematic standpoint and just from a plot standpoint, I was, I was plugged in from minute one. Absolutely. And I think also important to note is that, we all wanted to see a little more Underminer. <laughs> I know yes, for us. I in sure the, did. In the intervening years between the movies, the Underminer had kind of grown to these epic yes, proportions. You're so right. He got more interesting the less you saw. <laughs> right, exactly. The Underminer! He became kind of this poster child for ridiculously silly supervillains, kind of like yeah. Bomb Voyage. Yeah. Oh, I, w- I do wish Bomb Voyage had been able to make a, a another appearance, but... <sighs> God, I do too. But... I I actually pointed that out to Jameson, and he pointed out that since we saw Bon Voyage in flashback, he would be significantly yes, older. Yes, that's in this the only iteration. problem is he'd be like old man Dom Voyage, like oh, hanging out at the retirement home. <coughs> Those years of smoking the French cigarettes have not been kind <coughs> to me. 
Du bon voyage. <laughs> yeah, like, that's the only problem. Um, but yes, the underminer picking up that plot line, I think that was a great decision. Amen. Another thing that I think The Incredibles 2 did really nicely, clocking in at number eight, was continuing to obscure the exact origins of superpowers. So this is something mm. you and I have talked about a lot. I think that the desire, and I hate to continue to pick on, pick on this young man, a la Christopher Paolini, to over-explain the system of magic or <laughs> superpowers in your world is a real weakness, and it can be a helpful crutch if you want another 600 pages of plot, but it's not helpful if you want to compel the viewer. And so I think that the decision, like in the first one, to keep this sort of vague, like, were they the result of some sort of testing in a lab? Were they born this way? What happens if supers and non-supers have kids? That's all unexplained. And I think that one step that the movie took that could have endangered that was introducing the notion of all these different supers who we didn't know about. And I thought that it never felt forced in a really funky way. Those new supers we met, I thought only reinforced the sort of mystery and interest I felt towards our incredible bunch. I agree with that. And I'd like how they made all of these superheroes kind of foreign and just mm-hmm. brought them in. And because they had to draw from a new bank of supers, because that's kind of the whole plot of the first movies that mm-hmm. all these other ones were slowly being picked off. And I think that's the strength of the first movie as well is they very, they, te- it's like kind of how we do rapid fire honorable mentions. It's, it's, it's clever how they do kind of that slideshow of, yes. of supers that have been. Dinah girl! Yeah, well, Edna, when she's talking about stretch all gal! Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Dinah, well, Dinah guy wasn't Dinah- the brightest bulk. <laughs> and then, the, and then when he gets into the lair and he's looking through his log of like supers he's eliminated and it's gazer beam and all these different, <laughs> all these different supers that you just catch a glimpse and you're like, cool, what's his backstory? And then he's gone. And that I don't know and I don't want to know. I just want to think I want to know, but I don't really. Well, yeah, precisely. Kind of how we didn't really want to know what Han Solo was up to all those years, but. And it can be really annoying and disappointing when you find out. Right. So I agree. This, like, veiled, not super clear version of the superhero world is one that I really like. Yeah. So clocking in at number seven, another thing I loved about The Incredibles 2 was that it kept that really distinctive animation style. So... One thing that was really notable about Incredibles 2 was that the action, the actual flow and motion of the movie was much smoother. I thought that some of those scenes where there was like really intense, quick moving action, it looked much better and fresher, but it kept the same comic book feel of the first one. It still felt like they might be saying kapow. And I thought that that was a really kind of, that that's a tough balance to find. Mm-hmm. And I really thought they did. They did. What I thought was interesting, well, I found it to be a little, not disappointing, but it had less to do with the animation style as much as it did kind of just the general vibe of the movie was, whereas the first one felt very kind of Cold War espionage, spy thrillery almost. This one felt less that way and more kind of like golden age of superheroes kind of aesthetic, you know. All right, kind of so like- we're gonna so we're gonna skip the usual um kind of honorable mentions and recapping here because that's number six. 
So let's talk okay. about them. They're, let's talk about them in tandem. So yeah. I noted the 50s, 60s motif as a positive that they picked up on the second one that they kept from the first. And the note that I kind of put for myself was Zuckerberg surveillance with Cold War. And then I put in parentheses the TVs. Cause I loved that the TVs were the old bubble TVs, that the voices on the news sounded like old newsy voices, yada, yada, yada. All of the stuff that you and I have talked about loving about the first one. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how they kind of didn't fully live up to that in the second one. Well, and there were some things that they did. Like, for example, the house that they live in. Yeah. It's got that, that very, it's the, all, that same exact kind of era of design is all thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think in the first one, the fact that they have to infiltrate, I think really when I think about it, it's the sleek design of like the basically syndrome's lair and yeah. the huge rocket and the, the trains and the way that the guards are dressed up. And due to the nature of this movie's villain, there's not as much like Dr. Evilly lair set up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what made the first one feel so much more of an espionage movie. Whereas this one with like the, the big Metro city kind of like the, I can't remember what it was called. Municiburg. Like Municiburg. The way Municiburg is kind of highlighted and the way that they're on the boat and the politics evolved with it. It felt a lot more Superman-y than it did James Bondy. It's interesting you say that. So I'm, we're going to break a couple of the rules because these are all kind of related. What you mentioned about the house brings me to one of my not tops, which is that I thought the setting started to feel a little bit too much like Los Angeles, um, Mm. which was the note I made. So they have that big house up in the hills that looks like something some modernist asshole would have built in like the 1970s. So it definitely felt espionage in a way, but it also felt too place specific because that to me felt like that home is in Los Angeles. Like that, that's where that is. That's not in Municiburg. That's in Los Angeles. And I thought that the decision to have the high rise that went above the cloud line was cool, but it started to feel like it was building out a world that wasn't any town USA. And I think that Obviously, the Municiburg joke is that it is Anytown USA, and I think that's part of why the witness protection kind of angle of the first one works so well, is that the city they're in legitimately feels like a city you'd stick a retired superhero so that they don't stick out. And it didn't feel as much that way in the second one. I think you're right. The city seemed to have grown up with them as opposed to staying the way it was. It felt kind of like a parody almost. Like It it seems kind of silly to compare it, but really it's not... If you ever seen Megamind, yeah, they're no, like it is. they're they're clearly poking fun at Metropolis when they call it Metrocity mm-hmm. and like Metro City, and it it's kind of it, it felt very much like a, a Metropolis slash Metrocity Municiburg. I, I I can't fault them; it's clearly an intentional design choice. Mm-hmm. But to me, it felt like it was a a tonal shift from the first movie, and I think that tied in with the animation style. Though I would like to note. But I think you're right in that, especially some of the action sequences, the animation was stunningly beautiful. And, for example, I, I think my favorite scene in the movie is the Elastigirl eh, bike We're going to talk about chase. that. We're going to talk about that shortly. Keep on going. All right. So the only other... Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's recap the five and then do any other not-tops we have. So number 10... The great short leading up to the movie. Number nine, the decision to start the movie right after Incredibles 1. Number eight, the mystery of the superpowers in this universe. 
number seven, and number six, uh, kind of together with an asterisk, because we may be popping that bubble, the distinctive animation style, and then the 50s, 60s motif. So one other not top that I wanted to mention that I thought they kind of dropped the ball on a little bit, I didn't think there was enough of Lucius's wife. I was hoping for more of the super suit banter. So I I had this on my list as well. I think they either should have gone they yep. either shouldn't have done it or they should have done more. Yes. Because maybe have it be off screen, like have it be a note. Like have him read a note in his lunchbox that says like you know, why do you need to know or something. I completely agree because the way it came off was we know this is one of the defining scenes from the first movie. Yeah. We are going to find a way to put it in here. And it felt like a, a little more canny than I, I think I was hoping for. Yeah. And I think for the most part, this movie actually avoided doing that. And that was one case where it felt like this is a little too wink winky for me. Yes. I needed either a full on like nudge nudge or I needed kind of no wink. The other problem I had with that is I think it would have played a lot better if I hadn't already seen it in the trailer. Yes. Because yes, because that because to me totally that indicated that was the one teasing line of like seven we were gonna get. Exactly. We might have well, and I did read the actually designed her aesthetic. Like she had a character model, and they oh, actually ended up using that character model in the film elsewhere as an extra or whatever. Interesting. So they. I think they had the same thought that we did, and it just unfortunately ended up being the easiest thing to go and what was already the longest movie Pixar's ever made. Yeah. So, but yeah, I agree on that one. So do you have any other not tops that you're thinking of? One theme that I wish they had continued from the first movie that they didn't so much in this one was having one of the best villains of all time. I will say that the screen slaver, while compelling, was doomed to fail because how can you possibly top syndrome? Yeah. And I just, I found the, the sister or whatever her name was. I, I the thing, you know, it's part of it. I don't even remember her name. Like, I just thought the, the backstory and the motivation was a little murky and not quite compelling. I didn't quite get it. I'm um, not. I am not on board with your take on the new villain, but I am on board with your take that this is... I, I actually think this is a pretty good comparison with The Dark Knight to The Dark Knight Rises, mm-hmm. where if you had never seen The Dark Knight, you'd have probably been walloped by the Bane character in The Dark Knight Rises at how good he was, and I think the same would feel here, because... And we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about this, but this is a good time to talk about it. I thought that the backstory... And actually, we're not going to get too deep into it. I thought that the backstory of this character fit really nicely with some of the themes um, that we should talk about. So let's put a okay. pin in. Let's put a pin in that. But I think that there's there's a good conversation to be had on this. And I think okay. reason to think that this is a great villain and still think it doesn't live up to how great Syndrome was. Okay, fair enough. So actually, number five ties in a little bit. One thing that I thought Incredibles did really well that I also think Incredibles 2 did really well, was have great voice actors. Particularly voice actors who were not used to hearing in animated films. Because these days, there are certain vocal actors who are in every animated movie. Like Josh Gad, for example. was wonderful at all as Olaf, but is now in every animated movie. And for me, hearing the dulcet tones 
of Michael Ehrman Trout. Yeah. AKA Jonathan Banks as that agent maybe Agent s- Dicker. Agent Dicker. Rick was it Rick Dicker? I think so. Yeah, Rick Dicker made me so happy. As did hearing, of course, of course, Bob Odenkirk. But also, and I didn't know she was in it, Catherine Keener as whatever her name was, the screen slave or whatever her actual name was. Who is that, the actress? She's the girlfriend from 40-Year-Old Virgin. And also, very importantly, she's the the mom from Get Out, who is also a hypnotist. So, oh. right. So that was weird. I wasn't, sh- I, it, the timeline probably doesn't work out that Brad Bird would have known this. No. Um, but it's interesting that that's the case because it's the same thing she does in Get Out. But I love, I loved hearing both of their voices. I thought the voice work from the usuals, Holly Hunter, Craig T. Nelson, and, and co was wonderful. But it was nice to hear some new famous voices that you're not used to hearing in this setting. They always seem to get the the voice acting down just right. Yeah, and you're right. Odenkirk was was perfect for this, and I enjoyed the miniature Better Call Saul reunion. Yes, that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, that was a real delight. A shout out to this is stupid. I'm not going to remember his name, but he's the voice actor who does Ham in the original Toy Story. Yes, and yep. he's been he's voiced a character in every single Pixar movie since, and he voices the Underminer in this one. Yeah. So, And he was the boss in the first one, right? No, that's the voice of Rex. Oh, who was he in the first one then? What about our stockholders, Bob? Pam, I'm just going to Google his name. He he voices the Underminer in both. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. It's not Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn is... um, is Rex, I think. You're right about Rex. It's inconceivable. No, it's uh, John Ratzenberger. John Ratzenberger, okay. But I think what's really cool is that they pick actors and actresses who are exactly the right amount of famous, where if you're not a total geek like us, you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. If you are a total geek like us, you're like, Google's garbage trout. But, yeah, it's just like a nice, they're a nice mix. And I think the same goes for Craig T. Nelson and Holly Hunter. Like, they're famous, but they're not that famous. Most people wouldn't be able to pick Craig T. Nelson out of a, a lineup. No. Of guys not, that certainly kind of, not these days. Right. So, um, what was, right. uh, what was number four? Number four, and this is a big one. Number four is that it was damn funny. Just like the first one, it kept the humor. So I think, I personally think that the humor in two was a little bit dumber than the humor in the first one. So I, I think that the humor of like the, my client didn't ask to be saved. My client didn't want to be saved. It like, here's so-called actions. Like that's insanely funny as is just the entire conception of the Edna mode character. Like that stuff is funny. It's really clever. It plays off of old fifties movie stereotypes and the comic capes. books. Yes. Make the key, point yep. of fun at that whole genre. Yes. It's Absolutely. very, very tongue in cheek and very aware. It's very knowing humor. And that was what was really funny about the first one. The second one is not quite as clever in its humor, but it is also really funny in a way that animates this movie. It does a nice job of bringing sort of that Avengers balance of humor and seriousness. I think that the the scene that highlights it all is the Jack-Jack scene 
because uh, that was one of the funniest g- things that's I've ever seen. Is this going to appear higher on the list, or can we talk about this now? Let's talk about it now. So, uh, see, to me, that was... I already mentioned I thought the motorcycle scene is probably my favorite in the movie. And it all was together. This happened right after. Oh, my God. This movie, like, it's actually, I think, genius the way that they recreated the classic superhero versus supervillain battle Mm -hmm. with the raccoon and Jack-Jack. Like, the way that the raccoon is, like, dodge-rolling... And the pow, pow, bat, bat, like punching each other and the, like the bouncing off their backs and kicking and just like the way they're using their surroundings. It's so perfectly mirrors the, the classic comic book battle scene. Absolutely. And, and, and the cool thing is it felt like the first battle, like how in comics there's always like the one battle and then they have their climactic battle. Like I think they're in for round two. I would be shocked if there was not some kind of, I, and, and to be honest, I was surprised that we didn't see the raccoon recur later in the movie. I thought they were going to make a little bit of a running gag out of it. Well, it wouldn't be uh, surprising if the raccoon turns into a supervillain or something. Like, as dumb as that sounds, like, if, like... Sign me up. Like, Raccoon Claws, like, turns into a villain, that would not surprise me. Oh my, I was dying. And I also think that... What what's cool about this movie is that while it can make you laugh and poke fun at a genre, this is one of the shortcomings of, of Deadpool 2, where, like, they're trying to make fun of a genre but adhere to all its tropes in kind of a bad way. This movie is poking fun and paying homage while also just actually nailing the genre. And yeah. that scene was a really cool way to display Jack-Jack's powers, and it, it fit right into the whole rest of the movie thematically. If we're talking about other hilarious things, the part I I saw it with uh, Allegis and Jameson and Jameson's sister Bailey. All four of us were howling, howling with a little bit of physical uh, comedy at the restaurant when Violet turns around and oh, sees Tony. Beautiful. And she, her nose, she's and she just shoots the water out of her nose. It's that's as simple as that. It's just a girl embarrassed and she shoots water out of her nose and. Oh my god, I couldn't stop my stomach hurt. It was so funny. Did that kill in your theater? Absolutely killed. So we had, so I went, like I said, with uh, longtime girlfriend Caroline as well as Alex, and we were in a theater full of little kids. And let me tell you, that bit, the nose plays. The nose nose plays. plays. The nose plays, and it played in that, in that theater. And you're right. It's, it's a little dumber. It's a little slapstickier, but. Man, in that moment, I sure as hell wasn't complaining. And I'm totally, right and that's and that's sequels for you. Like the sequel is almost always going to be a little bit dumber, and I think it's okay as long as the movie accepts that and just goes with it. And I think that's what this movie did really well. It from shot one knew what it was and was comfortable with it. Amen, brother. Yeah, I I really loved how how much this one made me laugh. Yeah. Um. So that brings us through number four. I don't have any honorables. I didn't. I didn't really feel the need to put honorables in here, but thought you might have some. I'll. I'll just. I'll wait because I like did some kind of thinking about this on my own, and there are a couple things that I'm. I feel like we will talk about, and if we don't, I'll throw them on at the end. Okay. So number three, and I think this is probably it's not number one, as you can tell, because it's number three, but it's mm. probably the most important element. Number three is bringing back Brad Bird. <sighs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so bringing back Brad Bird was a very smart decision because Brad Bird is amazing. So I took a look through his list of projects that he's actually written slash directed. Uh, and here's the list. The Iron Giant. And the inc- like, yeah. One of the top, like my personal top 10 favorite movies of all time. It's incredible. Uh, the Iron Giant, The Incredibles. So Ratatouille. Mm hmm. Tomorrowland, which kind of sticks That's, out like a sore that, thumb on this list. Um, yeah. and then Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So I forgot that he directed Ghost Protocol because the first movie I compared this movie with as we left the theater was like, damn, I haven't seen an action movie that good since Ghost Protocol. And it was, I guess maybe I subconsciously was remembering. But the long and the short of this is Brad Bird knows his way around both a perfectly calibrated action movie with nothing more to it and a really thoughtful, interesting cautionary tale or morality play. The dude can do anything and he brought it for this one. He's a hero. And it's funny you say that because I've been rewatching Mission Impossible in preparation for next month and i can tell you that we will be talking more about those movies very soon on this very podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're right and like what's cool about this ghost, ghost protocol i rewatched it last week and it ties in with this it, it does is that bradbird took a series and he picked out the things that made it that series and he kept them and twisted them a little bit, and we'll talk about it a little more later. But like, it, and he did this. I think he's able to do the same thing in this movie, kind of, and that he took an existing genre and was able to put his own spin on it while not deviating and, and paying respect to it. And that's a that's an impressive talent to have, and it's really good to see him because I'll. I'll admit, I was a little worried after Tomorrowland, because I really did not care for it, but his career continues to amaze, and thank God they didn't screw up and go with someone else for this movie. That would not have been a good decision. That's We've seen how that goes. Like, Jaws 2, you know, pretty much anytime you see a different director, you have to be wary. It doesn't always (laughs) go, it doesn't always go wrong, but you gotta, you gotta prick your ears up a little bit. Well, it's the the good example immediately is I'm a little worried about the second Sicario movie, but we'll see. Yeah, I saw the reviews were not great. Oh, I didn't I didn't see that, but but that's they're, just they're, one of those classic examples. Or the new Apollo Creed movie. Like you take Ryan Coogler off a movie, you're kind of you're it's a little bit of a vacuum. Agreed. A little fun thing: a recurring. So Brad Bird went to I think it's definitely in California. One of the California big design schools out there mm-hmm. and a recurring joke or theme that comes out of students that go there and then end up working professionally is the combination of letters and numbers a one one three which oh. is one of which is i think one it's like their big lecture hall or it's some kind of reference to one of their school buildings there and if you pay attention in a lot of animated movies but definitely brad bird's movies you'll see that sequence of numbers pop up. So in this movie, if you're paying very close attention, I missed it the first time through. At school or whatever, there's like a banner behind them that has those numbers on it. And then actually, if you go watch Ghost Protocol, 
one of the gadgets that Tom Cruise uses is like a little, it, it's a fake class ring. And mm. when he, he holds his fist up, you can see embedded into the side of the class ring where normally would be like your graduation year. It says A113. So that's just a little Easter egg to look out for, for other Pixar and, and Brad Bird movies. Wow. Great yeah. little Easter egg. Yeah. Pretty fun. I dig the hell out of that. All right. So number two. One thing that I think that this movie did really well, and it's a little bit more on the change side, but I think it's continuous in the general method, is that it focused on the right characters. So I think the biggest change from one to two is kind of the main characters. The main characters of this movie are Elastigirl and Mm Jack-Jack, as opposed to the first one, which is really Mr. Incredible and then the kids, like mm-hmm. Dash and Violet. I well, thought, yes. Yeah. In, in, in the way that Elastigirl or Helen is in the first movie is how does she react to what Bob is doing? Yeah. And that, and that, and how does, how does one cope with that in this, in the, in the context of a marriage? And brilliantly, it's the exact opposite in this movie. Yeah, and that's and that will be something we're going to talk about shortly. But I think that recognizing that they had a total star on their hands in Elastigirl, both in terms of the Holly Hunter voice character and in terms of the powers, was really smart. And to go back to what you were saying, as cool and as awesome as it is to see Mr. Incredible punch stuff really hard... Just like you and I have talked about with Doctor Strange, bringing Elastigirl in allows you to just have a totally different paradigm for what the action is. And I'll let you get into it because you brought it up first. But let's talk about that motorcycle. The first time that it splits and she does the jump, my jaw dropped. My jaw literally dropped. It actually, that's something that rarely happens. It literally dropped. I couldn't believe that that was what had just happened. How often do you see any movie really... But particularly a superhero movie where they take a power and they do something with it that's so creative that you like hadn't even conceived that that was something you could do. And it makes sense. Never would have crossed my mind. It never would have crossed my mind that that would be something you would do. Like, when I saw it split apart, I thought, cool, she'll elongate and be able to do some some interesting things just by virtue of it being longer. But the way that she was able to traverse multiple elevation levels and jump with it, and it was just so unbelievably creative and just a, like a, just a beautiful scene to witness. It was like new and fresh in a way that you very rarely see in action or superhero movies. I was really, really impressed by it. Totally. I, it was like watching the best of that chase scene from Skyfall. And it was like taking that and it was like taking some of the best of the Avengers and it was like taking some of the best things about Mission Impossible and just mashing it all together and just doing it perfectly. I mean, how many times have we seen a train chase or a helicopter chase or even both in movies? Infinite times. Infinite. That, that Those are two of like the great train robbery was, I think, one of the first movies ever released. It's such an it, it's old as movies itself. And this made it feel so different and so fresh. I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know what was going to happen. Incredible. I, they did some interesting things with her powers in the first movie. Like when she's stuck in between those three doors in the base. Yeah. And and that was really cool. 
Yeah, and they just took it to the next level. Or the fan right, boat. The... That was really cool when they did the boat. Yeah. But the, the helicopters, you're right, the helicopter scene too was so great. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like this is a, a new concept. The person can be stretchy. I mean, Mr. Fan, they've had three movies to do anything like this with Mr. Fantastic and they never have. Nope. And I don't think they ever will. <laughs> and in the DC verse, there's a character named Rubber Band Man or not or the Rubber Man or something like that. It's yeah. not a new concept and yet they were able to make it incredibly fresh. And I will say that I really enjoyed they made some tweaks to Violet power to Violet's powers in this movie where she yes, could where she shot and, the force field. Which is a subtle but important difference that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I really enjoyed the, that side character named Void. Yes! Some, Those were some, cool powers. That was, it was, it reminded me of playing Portal, but there were some yeah. really, yes, and that's it's, what I was too. especially her powers in conjunction with Violets and Elastigirls when they were fighting each other, and then mm-hmm. also when they're working in tandem. Those were some very, very, this movie functions really well just as an action movie when it's trying to do that that's the thing i i I, like i said i left that and i said that's the best action movie i've seen since ghost protocol and i believe it i stand by that it was just perfectly calibrated action really different really creative really impactful it just it hit all the action movie boxes just perfectly i couldn't agree with you more yeah um all right so that brings us to number one this was the number one Best thing shared by both Incredibles and Incredibles 2. They were able to give me a great and entertaining action movie with comedy, with heart, all this stuff, and give me some really weighty, thoughtful themes in a way that was just seamless and never felt forced and felt totally in keeping with what the characters would have done. So the first one, it deals with stuff like dissatisfaction in your marriage, dissatisfaction with your job. It deals with kind of peripherally like issues of racism and classism and xenophobia with the the heroes it deals with really weighty stuff it deals with figuring out who you are at school with violet but i think the defining kind of theme of the first incredibles movie would probably be like fulfillment it would be something like fulfillment would probably be a good way to put it because our main character we're paying attention to is mr incredible And he's not fulfilled. He feels really empty because his life isn't what he thought it would be. Holy shit. This is a kid's movie. And that's kind of how I would encapsulate the theme. And it was balanced really nicely against that whole movie. This one, I think there's a lot of good arguments to talk about what the theme is. But some of the stuff it touched on really interestingly was surveillance and justice like, what is justice? What What is the role of surveillance? Like, it sort of had the Truman Show situation where they had the cameras on her at all times. Well, and, and it kind of explored the concept of a nameless, faceless attacker, which we're forced to encounter every day now with the way what the Internet has become in the last however many years. Totally. And, and I think... I think it's important to draw a line. When I was talking earlier about my disappointment in the villain, I... I think it's fair to say that the screen slaver operates separately kind of from the sister because kind yeah. of the point of the screen slaver is that it's kind of nameless. It's like a prop. Right. And and I don't know if you remember, but after the helicopter chase scene when she's tracking the the signal of the screen slaver, but she's she's basically she they show her 
tracking and getting to this spot. And the whole time his broadcast continues to play or her broadcast continues to play over her. And it's kind of attacking the notion of, I, I thought this was actually a really clever bit of writing because it was attacking the notion of us living through our devices and vicariously through others. And instead yes. of, instead of playing a sport, you watch someone play a sport yeah. instead of, instead of, Going out and doing something great, you watch a movie about someone doing it. And it, and it kind of took a shot, not a shot, but it kind of pointed out like why we have this fascination lately with the superhero movie and how we put these, we idealize these idols because we want to feel safe. And I, I thought there was a lot to work with in there. And I, I actually quite, enjoyed that a bit and i think that's one of the i think one of the things you're getting at totally that kind of felt like you you could have been playing batman arkham and listening to the riddler somebody talked to you about how stupid society is it was really well done also fairly reminiscent of the joker and how we put our our trust in these in in his point and in this movie's point like how do you know these people are kind of fake idols if you think about it and I thought the I thought it was interesting, and it's, it's a kids movie, and it, you know this is a really weird thing to to pick a nit with. I thought the ease with which they navigated back into the legality of supers was is a little me personally. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more in the way of exploring that theme, and obviously it's already a two hour kids movie. It's really movie. funny you said it because I was like, what is this supranational agreement that's been put yeah. into place? I whatever this is a dumb this is a dumb thing but it but what i think more so than taking issue with the internal logic of the movie what it's pointing out is that the movie has made this such a compelling and thoughtful discussion that i actually care like what what's the logistics of getting this into play like how did this law actually get put on the books i'm actually interested i want to see this movie because this is what captain america civil war was supposed to be and it wasn't yep and this movie wasn't supposed to be that, but it brought it up. And I think that's a really fascinating discussion. Like, wouldn't you feel nervous about entrusting your livelihood and your safety to the, I mean, you saw in this movie, like how easily they were influenced. I don't, it, we don't have to get into this, but I, you're right. Like that is something worth exploring. I'd, I'd like to see that happen somewhere somehow. Totally. And I, so I think one of the other themes that this explored really intelligently and in a way that I thought was really cool because it's very in keeping with the moment, but also felt very timeless was the idea of sort of sexism and misogyny. Like I thought that the, the issues Mr. Incredible had allowing his wife to take the lead were really well done because they felt very personal to him. It felt very specific to their situation but it felt like it was portrayed in a way that sort of understood that this is a problem in a lot of marriages and a lot of friendships, partnerships, whatever, where there is a gender dynamic at play, where this is a guy who struggles to have a woman who is as powerful or more powerful than him. And it was really thoughtfully done because I don't think the movie trivialized either of their roles. I, I didn't think it was being patronizing to the idea of the importance of his function now as sort of the jokey, you know, stay at home mom or her role as the provider. I think it was the movie was pointing out that both are really, really important. And as a practical kind of matter, 
they probably have to be two separate roles, especially in this family because they're both superheroes. What the movie is poking fun at is the idea that one or the other has to be done by one or the other gender. And I thought it was really cool because it, it accepts that the family as it's constituted needs somebody to be at home to help these kids do their homework and keep them from blowing up the neighborhood. And it needs somebody out there saving the world. And, you know, at different times, one of them is going to have to step off the stage. And for this one, it's Mr. Incredible. He loves his wife. And the reason he loves his wife is because she's powerful and awesome. But he still wouldn't mind being a little more powerful and a little more awesome than her. And what's more understandable than that? That's a totally relatable feeling, whether that has to do with, you know, your significant other, your friend, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad. Everybody wants everybody to be awesome, but just a little less awesome than them. Like, that's to think that is to be human. I I agree. And I found that particular storyline to be definitely relatable I'm, I'm sure you do too as a young professional and your significant other young professional and it's like this weird balance of like you were just saying like fierce pride that the person you're with is <laughs> successful and competent and confident and also <laughs> dealing with the competitive nature of what each of us has totally and- this this is like right isn't this just classic pixar though it's a kids movie that you leave the theater like really having it linger with you and somehow it has really relevant <laughs> and hard hitting messages that stick with you the very next day at work I- absolutely and one thing i wanted to kind of touch on too on this topic about gender is i thought it was really interesting um to get back around to why i thought that the katherine keener I, I don't keep forgetting her name but whatever the villainess's name is is how angry she is at her father for not doing what he ought to have done to protect the family because once again we're talking about a really like loaded gender specific topic this is the role of a man, because if we're taking the timeline into play here, this is like the 1930s, maybe, at this time, when yeah. the father is killed. So it's like the 1930s, it's the man of the house, he's supposed to protect the family, and what does he do? Instead of cowering in fear in his panic room, he tries to be big man and call on a superhero. And it gets them killed in a really shockingly violent way. I was very surprised they yeah. actually showed a gun on screen. That seemed a little dark, but... but And that's what that's what sends her on this journey to become a villain is that she's really mad that this guy's trust and faith in this kind of archaic weird system is what got their family where it is. I thought that was a really clearly a a deliberate choice and one that I thought really worked very well because as you watched it, you could understand where the Odenkirk character is coming from in romanticizing their dad. Like, hey, he had a direct line to all these superheroes. But you can also understand how you know, a young kid whose family dies because the dad is like so trusting in these goofballs and capes. That's you can see where that would set you on a course. Yeah, you're right. I think my I thought it was a bit of a jump to because to, to me and, and, and it makes sense, really, that obviously upset with her father and then it's the anger and the whatever the trauma is getting taken out on these superheroes that her father, in her opinion, so foolishly put his trust in and so they become the target of her ire that makes sense it's the whole the nuts and bolts of it i think 
felt I a agree. little unwieldy to me. And that's the all. nuts and bolts of it are a little unwieldy. I think that the emotional core of it is really interesting and compelling in a similar way to Syndrome. But I agree that the nuts and bolts of it feel different because it's obvious that Syndrome's feelings would be taken out on Mr. Incredible. It's right. less obvious that this girl wouldn't become a social worker or an advocate for like more traditional forms of justice or a self-defense, you know, instructor or something like that. Like it's less obvious that those things wouldn't be options for her. Whatever. I, it's, it's a, it's a quibble because I think ultimately it works really well. Yeah. Well, I, the only other thing I wanted to make sure that we really hit home about this one is that there can be no debate that throughout most of this movie, the highlight is Jack Jack. I just yeah. can't overstate how whenever he's on screen, you just have a smile on your face with the the way he disappears and the cookies and just when his when his What does he call carton, the cookies? Cookies, cookies, nom nom cookies. Yeah, nom I keep saying nom nom cookies. And the flame retardant suit when he eats the and he's just yes, lavender just, flavored. And also see and here's exactly to the point we were talking about earlier, how shoot in the Frozone's wife thing felt. I think they were in danger of doing that with Edna by replaying the she makes a suit kind of formula. Yep. And they and they added to it really effectively by making her and Jack Jack become such a fun pair. Mm-hmm. And the way that when he comes back to pick her up and or pick him up and they're walking down the hall and Jack Jack has that lollipop and he's just sauntering with that look on his face. That was one of the best that was that was one of the most joyful feelings I've had in a movie in a very long time was watching Jack Jack walk just like Edna. Like that just made me so happy. <gasps> oh, oh so great. So I, I, yeah, I just wanted to make sure it went, it went said that he was the highlight character wise, I think for me. And I, I couldn't get enough of him. And totally. I, and, and here's the thing, you know, how we loved that this movie picked up exactly where the first one left off. Yeah. I'll go further and say that inevitably when they make the third version of this film, I want it to pick up while Jack Jack is still an infant because totally. I'd love if child, it picked up like tomorrow. Like, ten minutes after... Exactly. Yep. Like, like as they chase that car down the street. Because, it's like you said before, I don't care about Jack-Jack as a kid when he has to figure out how to handle all these powers. I just want to see how you interact with a baby that can do all the things that he can do. I, I really hope that they keep, keep up that trend. Totally. And I just... One other Jack-Jack thing that I want to note that I think ties in with all of this is that they did... I think Jack-Jack is, like, such a perfect encapsulation of what makes these movies so great because he's goofy, he's funny, he fights with the raccoon in a way that's awesome and he imitates Edna in a way that's awesome and but he also I thought one of the more poignant parts of the movie was when the other when the kids find out that he has powers and Mr. Incredible is so excited because realistically that would be the reaction. They would all want to pretend cuz these movies are really intensely honest. Like, they're really honest about their people's feelings that you'd want to pretend it was just fine that he didn't have powers. But it's not. They all want him to have powers. And Mr. Incredible is so happy he does. We we understand, it goes without saying in these movies, that he would love Jack-Jack anyway. But he's pretty excited he has powers, and so are the kids. It's beautiful. It kind of reminds me of... um 
Yep. Neville. That is exactly what I said to Shelby when we talked about this. I said, it's just like when Neville bounced. Yep. It's just like when Neville bounced. The last thing I want to mention is something that I really loved about this movie. And I think it's a credit to how good Michael Giacchino is that it's not maybe on the forefront of our minds is just, again, the score for this movie is amazing. We, on the way over to the movie theater, we threw on the soundtrack from the first one and it made me so giddy and I just love it. The big brass band kind of the griller style score. It's, it's incredible. Aha! Sorry. Ah, I know it's hard to keep away from it. It's just, that's how I feel about this movie. I couldn't agree more. And I just, the very last thing from me, I'm just happy. I'm just really, really happy to see them successfully do a sequel, a Pixar sequel, because I will say apart from the Toy Story franchise, I've been generally disappointed with the sequels they've come out with. Totally. And I think to me, the what this one figured out that the other ones didn't is that it was okay for it to, in spite of this whole pot about ways it's kind of similar, for it to branch out a little bit and to try to do something a little bit different and not be the same movie. And I think that that was the mistake that several of the others have made. Toy Story, it deserves to be considered as its own beast. It's, yeah. for whatever reason, it has a glow around it and it's just a little bit different. But generally speaking, it's not a good idea when you try to recapture what made your first one so good. And I think that's what this one got. And hopefully future Pixars can say, hey, we made an A+, plus, but if we try to make an A-, minus, I bet we can. Because if they try to make another A+, plus, they're going to make a C like they've been. Completely agree, buddy. Yeah, I'm, we, don't, we don't need to rank these. I think it's a silly exercise. And besides, totally. we're coming in at... Just under an hour, which is another piece of advice I got this weekend from a good friend <laughs> and and soon to be friend of the pod, uh, Sarah. Yeah, keep it, keep it, keep it short and sweet. So it's good. I'm, gl- I'm good. Glad we got this one under an hour. So, uh, why don't but you- friends, still listen to the other pod that we're going to be doing, which is about an hour and a half. Oh well, yeah, still listen to that one. But <laughs> okay, do you want to recap for us? Yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll hit it. All right, so number ten had a great short. Number nine, picked up the plot line right after The Incredibles. Number eight, kept those superpowers a little mysterious for us. Number seven, retained that really distinctive animation style. Number six, with a couple hiccups here and there, maintained the 50s, 60s spy motif. Number five, kept trickling in those voice actors who are like, oh, that guy. Uh, number four, kept things light, kept it pretty funny. Number three, maintained the big man. Brad Bird, the man the behind big bird. all of this. The big bird. Big bird. The big bird behind all of this. Uh, number two, really honed in on a couple of key characters. In this case, Jack-Jack and Elastigirl. And number one, it balanced all of that greatness with some really thoughtful thoughtful reflection on some weighty themes. That incredible. was The Incredibles 2. Truly incredible, my man. Thank you, Mike. That was a delight. <laughs> that was a delight. All right, buddy. Signing off. I'll see you soon. Adios, amigo. Peace. Alrighty, friends. That was our top 10 for this week, but now we'd love to hear your top 10. So please check us out on all of our available social media outlets, traditional outlets, whatever outlets we have. Check us out on Twitter at top10km. That's all spelled out, top10km. Our email, top10km, spelled the same way, at gmail.com, or our site, 
top10km.podbean.com. All forms of communication accepted, except for serial killer notes. Please don't send us any of those. If you like the pod, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never have to miss an episode of Top 10 ever again. If you didn't like it, please tell us why. We'll try to make the show better. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod, and our artwork was created by Erin Sant. You can check out her stuff at Sant Design on Instagram. Alrighty, goons. We'll see you next week.